A River to Cross, Chapter 1 Life is Like a River, the Homachitta. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 46 4. There are times when rivers abandon their natural course and overflow the banks, resulting in damage to their own borders and all adjacent to them. Depending on the scope and length of the flood, the damage can be extensive. In like fashion, we all have moments and seasons when we defy our natural course and overflow. When we abandon our intended course, our place, there are always consequences to us and to those around us. The closer we are to another person, the greater the damage they suffer when we overflow our banks. Floods are a natural part of the cycle of rivers, yet we seek ways to effectively limit the damages from those floods. Likewise, our lives have times of flooding. My life has been sprinkled with many floods, floods that have often defined me, damaged me, and tragically damaged the lives of others. A rampaging river is a destructive river. A rampaging life is likewise destructive at every level. Rain and rain-producing storms will always come. How do I prepare for them and establish and maintain flood controls to keep the river strong, healthy, and in the banks as much as possible, and to minimize the damage when the floods do occur? If life is like a river, one must ask, which river best reflects my life? I don't have to even pause to answer this question. The Homochitta is the river of my life. We enjoy many connections and bear similar high and low watermarks in our respective histories. We both have undergone many changes and the marks left by the floodwaters are there for all to see. I have enjoyed a love affair with the Homochitta going back to my early childhood. While at Ole Miss, I told many people I had discovered an amazing natural phenomena. Franklin County is the geographic center of the universe. At the heart of the universe's center point is a strong and handsome lady, the Homochitta River. God spoke in creation, and as he spoke, the Homochitta River came forth from the throne of God and flowed through and across the long and many generations of time and man. The Homochitta's headwaters are along the common boundary between Kapai County and Lincoln County, Mississippi. She flows 90 miles from her headwaters to her confluence with her big sister, the mighty Mississippi. In those 90 miles, the Homochitta River flows through and across Franklin County from its northeast corner to its most southwest corner. As the Homochitta traverses Franklin County, she clearly divides the pine forest, cornfields, and steep green hills of our county with her shallow, sparkling, clear waters and wide, white sand beaches. She sustains those same forests and fields with her clear nectar of life-sustaining waters. The lady we call Homochitta has not always looked as she does today. For thousands of years before she was first touched by man, the Homochitta was a slower, deeper, and narrower river, 
with forest-crowded banks heavy with virgin cypress and longleaf pines. In 1938, the Army Corps of Engineers redirected this elegant lady out of the old Mississippi River Channel, now known as Lake Mary, directly into the main channel of the Mississippi River, a little north of their former point of confluence. The result of this extensive and challenging engineering feat was to speed up this grand old dame. The increased speed of her flow began a destructive erosion of her own banks. In the last 80 years, she has become broader and lost much of her depth. In place of her heavily forested banks, she developed wide, beautiful white sandbars. Instead of the deep, slow girl of her youth, she is now wider and shallower, yet quite sparkling and beautifully framed by her long strips of white sand beaches. In the same way the Homochitta defines and divides Franklin County, she has likewise flowed over, through, and across the 64 years of my life, both defining and dividing. She is a real beauty, but as with all beauties, there are times when the beast side of the beauty shows up. Just as the Homochitta has undergone great changes, so it seems I have experienced dramatic changes as well. And many times the beast in my own life has reared its ugly head. This story of rivers and life is the one I seek to share with you in these pages. My original purpose in writing was to find a way to cross the river, to get back on the right side of the river for me. The publishing of these thoughts, these pages, is in the hope of encouraging you to take a close and candid look at your own life. I pray you will find laughter, encouragement, strength, and humility here as I share with you some times of calm and some times of cataclysmic floods and the lessons I have learned and am continuing to learn through the process. I also hope that at some level these pages may help you avoid some of the dangerous currents and eddies of life that I, through my own foolishness, fell victim to. May God bless you and draw you to him as you read this account of my search for meaning and direction in the river of life. An honest look at your own life is key to not repeating your mistakes. Chapter 2. The Headwaters of My River of Life My Earliest Memories Begin Quote, Seek and ye shall find, end quote. Matthew 7, 7 my earliest memories begin on Railroad Avenue in Bude, Mississippi, in the white clapboard home belonging to my great-grandfather, William Calvin McGee. It's the home he built when he moved his family to town when Bude was born around 1912 or so. My first conscious memory, at about two years of age, is leaving our home alone in the early morning hours and making my way up Railroad Avenue to a place of great wonder and excitement, the Bude Barbershop. The Bude Barbershop was run by Mr. Shelley McDaniel and Mr. Pap Temple. I am told that prior to my solo trip to the barbershop, I had been taken there by my father for my first haircut. I have to assume that the earlier visit must have awakened in me a curiosity and a willingness to push and test the boundaries of exploration for a two-year-old. This is my first conscious memory of drinking, 
living life my way. Today, when my mind drifts back to the Butte Barbershop, I can close my eyes, take a deep breath, and conjure up the smell of talcum powder, cigar smoke, bay rum, shaving cream, farmer's overalls after a night of chasing the foxhounds, and stale sweat. I can see the mirrors, the barber's shades, the cigar stand, the leather straps, and the foxhorns on the walls, as well as the barber's chairs, the seat along the opposite walls, and the front door and windows looking out across the railroad yards to the sawmills with their piles upon piles of pine logs and stacks upon stacks of freshly sawn pine lumber. I can hear the steady buzz of the clippers and men's talk as they discussed matters of politics, bass fishing, hand-grabbing catfish, fine fox-hunting hounds, hot dinners of crusty chicken pie and buttery cornbread, and the love of a good shave. I don't recall the details of any particular conversation, but I do remember my great wonder at the words of the men there. I can tell you the topic that grabbed and held my attention back then, the closed-off, mysterious back room of the shop. To this day, I don't know for sure what was really going on, but I know that Mr. Shelley made it clear he didn't want me going there because wildcats and all manner of things waited to eat up little boys like me in that back room. He couldn't have known then, but far from scaring me, he was stoking the fires of my insatiable desire to see the wildcats and other varmints for myself. The whole notion of having to see things for myself was a foreshadowing of, or maybe a part of the formation of, the deep channels in which my life was already beginning to flow. I already had that need, that desire to see things for myself and to go where someone else said, don't. When I think back to my early morning solo trip to the barber shop at such a young age and I plug that into today's thinking, well, you just can't imagine that today. It seems quite unimaginable for a two-year-old to leave home alone and go anywhere. To leave and go up the street to a local business where men gathered seems even more bizarre. Thankfully, in that day, it was not a cause for concern. My mother came and retrieved me, as she did on subsequent occasions when I made other early morning expeditions to the barbershop. Dorothy Simmons McGee, my mother, a part of the great generation, was and is a great mother. In a way, we certainly didn't see or think of at the time my mother's coming to the rescue was another foreshadowing of things to come. It would be fair to say that as early as two years of age, my river sometimes jumped the channel and ran outside the banks. As my cousin would put it 60 years later, I had quit preaching and gone to drinking. At a level deeper than I can really explain, this leaving home was a new direction for my life to flow. This new independent direction is one like the cores tinking with the Homochitta River that would have significant and sometimes destructive consequences throughout my life. People seem to prefer life to always be tame, to be predictable and controllable. I have never found life to be that way, nor do I believe it shall ever be. I think C.S. Lewis said it best, 
quote, however often we think we have broken the rebellious self, we shall still find it alive, end quote. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. The battle with the person in the mirror is a lifelong process, but it is a battle that must be fought and one worth fighting. You are worth it. Chapter 3 a river outside its banks. Quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Psalm 81:10. Just because something will fit in your mouth doesn't mean it belongs there. This is a lesson I seem to have missed entirely, even from a very young age. I didn't know or apparently didn't want to hear that the lines were there to help you color, to help you through life. I thought they existed to prevent life from happening. It seems that even in the tender years I felt challenged by the lines and so just used them to frame the inside of my outside. Strangely, I recall events from the earliest years of childhood, at least as early as age two. I was two the first time I had my stomach pumped out at Franklin County Memorial Hospital. I thought the white stuff in the tube was ice cream, so I ate it. It wasn't ice cream. It was white glue, a rubber cement type glue in a tube under the kitchen sink. My mother was washing dishes, and as I was playing on the floor under the kitchen sink, setting the example for most of the rest of my life, I saw something that looked good, and with little thought and no restraint, I went for it full speed ahead. My memory of what happened next is vivid and stark. They put me in a straitjacket, rolled me up in a sheet, and trussed me up like a calf in a catchpin squeeze chute. Once they had me all wrapped up, they came at me with a stomach pump. I can't describe to you exactly what the pump looked like, but I can tell you it seemed some part of it was black and some other part was red. Those memories are pretty well etched into my mind to a level deep enough that I can almost associate smells with this pointed recollection. What I seem to recall with the greatest clarity is that for a brief time in that treatment operating room, I was the center of attention. I have a sensory awareness of being thrilled by that attention. I didn't know it then, but that thrill, that rush, was something called adrenaline, the misuse of which would haunt me for many decades to come. The desperate need or desire for a rush would create trouble and lead to tragedies that, mercifully, none of us anticipated. Regardless of how much the adrenaline rush appealed to me, I don't recall the process as being anywhere close to enjoyable, and my mother says, I don't recall this, that when I thought they should be through, I said emphatically, all through now, Hollis, get down. Less than a year later, I had my second encounter with a stomach pump at Franklin County Memorial Hospital. 
Round two happened when Mr. Hilton May was treating our house on Railroad Avenue imbued for various pests of the insect variety, not of the little boy variety. He had a bulb-type sprayer that was awfully attractive to me. While Mr. May and my mother were concluding the business of paying the bill, I was behind them with the bulb in one hand and the business end of the sprayer in my mouth, apparently trying hard to get rid of the pest within. Sensing an unhealthy quiet, my mother turned and spotted me with the sprayer. Just as she prepared to faint, she cried out to Mr. May, Will it kill him? Mr. May promptly responded, Don't worry, Mrs. McGeehee, that stuff wouldn't hurt a flea. Mother retorted, Then what in the world am I paying you for? My career at Franklin County Memorial Hospital was really starting to bud by this time. My trips there were far from over, and tragically for me and my parents, I was becoming a well-recognized figure among the faithful at our tiny country hospital in the mid-1950s. I don't have any sense that my actions were intentionally pointed towards self-destruction, but over and over, then and later, I had significant periods when I refused to color inside the lines. Parenthesis, I was drinking, in parenthesis. There were also times of preaching, and the two ebbed and flowed. Writing this account makes me look back across my life with a critical eye, and I am confronted with a very clear pattern of being on the receiving end of one calamity after another, usually arising from circumstances I should never have been in to start with. The pattern, as I see it looking back, is one of unintentional thrill-seeking leading to adrenaline rush euphoria, thereby meeting some deep need that I didn't know then and don't fully understand today. But I'm getting way ahead of myself because for me, life was truly grand. I had two older sisters who pulled me in my red wagon, played with me in their playhouse, and sometimes gave me as much misery as I did them. I had parents who loved me and were doing their personal best to train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. A careful but thorough look into the events of our childhood and to the underlying motivations may well yield a deeper insight into the who and why of our lives. Chapter 4, Laying Out the Channel For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Matthew 18, verse 20. Our little village of Bude, Mississippi, was a mill town. It was conceived and born for the specific purpose of being home to the Homochittle Lumber Company, which was, at the time, the world's largest pine timber sawmill. The town was made up of housing constructed by the mill for the people it needed to man and operate a high-production southern pine timber sawmill. It was 1911, and along with the formation of the mill and the town, there also came the school and the churches and the stores and post office. For the moment, it is the church I wish to speak of, my church. I loved Bude Methodist Church back then as I do today. Our church was a place where older women who smelled sweet and mostly were sweet loved to grab me and hug me. 
I don't think I was supposed to like it, but I figured out early on a hug was a pretty neat deal. Our church was a place where the men stood on the front steps and smoked and talked of six-man football, local and state politics, hunting for the elusive but delectable Bob White quail, and sometimes they even talked about God. I'm sure we had a good gas heater somewhere in the church building, but the main thing I recall about the temperature of our church was the warmth of the people, their love for one another. I know there is no perfect church. Our church, like everyone before or since, was made up of people, and people aren't perfect. We are all like old prickly porcupines, and sometimes our quills stick others where they don't want to be stuck. But I don't remember the quills. I just remember the warmth of standing close. Bude Methodist was a place where I experienced real love and time with people who were free and generous with that precious, life-nurturing commodity. Now let's be clear, not a single one of those grown-ups had any problem letting me know if I got, quote, outside the banks, end quote, at church. A good paddling was readily available if I didn't want to get back in line. Yet I knew I was safe, loved, and cared for by those very same people who administered discipline. I knew the people there had my back. I learned what it means to be loved in a real way, not just the good stuff, but the correction too. In addition to the love of all the people and the men and their talk that I love to listen to, next in line were the real peanut butter and jelly sandwiches handed out at Vacation Bible School, made the right way with the peanut butter and grape jelly blended together. However, my fondest and most deeply felt and held memories from Bude Methodist involved my parents and singing. Now, neither of my parents were ever requested to sing a solo. We were not a particularly musical family, although my mother enjoyed playing the piano and came from a very musically talented family. In my heart today, I can hear and feel her playing and singing somewhere over the rainbow, as well as her nightly lullaby to me, which is still precious and fresh on my mind. I call my mother every night, and she always answers, Hey, honey. She's almost 92, and I'm going on 65. It causes a chemical reaction that can't be matched by any substance produced by man. She and I speak every night, and lately we have begun to sing some hymns during our phone calls, taking me back to those earliest days at our church. My parents seem to have arranged it for me to sit beside one of them or often sandwiched between the two of them. As I reflect back, I'm quite certain that this cage-like seating arrangement was not accidental. Putting me between my parents was a well-conceived plan, no doubt born of experience, with a goal of keeping me in line, keeping me from overflowing the banks in the middle of the church. They meant it for damage control, but for me it was and is to this day about feeling the sweet melody that flowed from somewhere deep inside my mother and father, from their very core, their spirits, as they joined in singing old hymns like Blessed Assurance, Softly and Tenderly, and Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, together with many others. 
To this very day, more than 60 years later, I can both hear and feel the old hymns flowing forth from deep within my parents. These songs weren't just sung by them. The words, the thoughts, and the emotions were coming forth from their very souls. Mays and Dorothy McGee were not then, nor are they now, perfect in any way. But you could feel and hear that they truly loved God and wanted to get it right. I attribute that deep sense of the reality of their efforts in worship for imparting to me a real desire for a deep and abiding relationship with and faith in a loving, gracious, and holy God. This desire and relationship are true even and especially when life becomes a flood that leaves damage and destruction in its wake. My parents and our church family at Bude, like all of us, certainly fall well within the, quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, end quote, description Paul gave in his letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. But in their imperfections, which were many, parenthesis, as is true of us all, in parenthesis, I see that they were like what God said of David, quote, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will, end quote, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Foundations are laid early in life and are enduring. Footnote number four. On January 21st, 2014, my father, Mays McGeehee, in his 90th year on earth, passed from this life into life eternal. I had written this chapter in several years before his death. The last words my father ever spoke were these. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, Call for songs of loudest praise. Robert Robinson, 1735 to 1790. On October 19th, 2019, my mother, Dorothy Simmons McGee, passed from this life at the age of 93 and a half, as she liked to say. With all four of her children by her sides and literally holding her hands and feet, she drew her last breath, and the light of a beautiful life came to a close here on earth.